Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, it's our custom to make sure that we are ready to worship God. Worship is a byproduct of the filling of God the Holy Spirit, as is every other aspect of the individual's spiritual life. Scripture says that when we sin, we don't lose our salvation if we put our faith alone in Christ alone, but it does breach our relationship with God, much as a child's disobedience will fracture his rapport with his own parents. Recovery comes through simply admission of our sin. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we usually begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, and then I open in prayer. So let's bow our heads together as we go to the Lord. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You created us in a way that we could understand that which you have communicated to us. You created us, the scripture says, in the image and likeness of yourself. And you did this so that you could have a relationship with us. That relationship is based upon what you have revealed to us and described to us in your word. Your word is the absolute criterion for everything related to our salvation and our spiritual life. Now, fathers, we come together today to study a topic that is somewhat controversial for some and scary for others. We pray that you'd comfort us with the certain promises of your word and that we would know that your word is clear and precise in how it deals with these particular subjects related to the unseen forces of evil. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the midst of a somewhat lengthy digression in our study of Revelation into the area of what we call the angelic conflict, dealing with Satan's initial rebellion against God in eternity past and how that is working itself out in history. For several weeks now, we have been studying Satan's attacks in history, and these come under two categories. The first has to do with Satan's direct attacks, and the other has to do with his indirect attacks. We're still studying under his direct attacks. We've looked at the first initial direct attack on mankind in the Garden of Eden. That was followed by a direct attack on the human race in Genesis chapter 6, when the sons of God, a term to describe uh, angels, in that case fallen angels, uh, sought to take human wives in order to destroy the genetic purity of the human race. We studied through the various passages uh, related to that particular subject. And then we saw that in the Old Testament there really are no other examples of direct assaults on the human race, although there are many indirect assaults, which we'll come back to uh, when we get to the, that particular category. We then looked at the direct assault by Satan on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
during the time of his temptation, following his 40 days in the wilderness, Satan appeared to him, and there were three temptations as described in uh, Matthew chapter 4. Last week, we looked at another type of direct satanic attack during the period of the Incarnation. It is that of demon possession. Last time I talked about the fact of demon possession, the reality of demon possession, and the uh, understanding of just exactly what demon possession uh, was. I have a definition I've worked on since last week that should be up on the screen. Let me turn the other screen on. You have it on the left. There we go. Demon possession is the invasion of a person's body by a demon who overrides the person's sole control of his own body. This does not eradicate the individual's personality, soul, thinking, or volition, and just somehow overrides that sole control of the body so that a person is not able to express himself physically. There's some, somehow, in some way, there is a, uh, the, the demon inter, in, in, intersects that soul control with the, with the physical body. Now, we saw that last time because we looked at a one particular example in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, which is the story of the uh, Gadarene demoniac. And we saw that there are three particular technical terms that are used in the Greek that help us to understand what this concept means. There's a lot of people who question this, and, and you can read any number of biblical uh, expositors, biblical commentators, some will say, oh, there's Christians can be demon-possessed. Actually, you'll find people who say, there's really no such thing as demon possession. That's just a theological category that's been developed and then imposed on the Scripture. And you'll hear this today from many, many different people. And they will say that the Greek word is actually this term, daimonizomai. Daimonion is the Greek word for demon, and when it's converted into a verb, it becomes this passive participle. And they would say technically what it means is simply to be acted upon by a demon. Well, acted upon by a demon can include any broad range of different activities from what we would call demon influence to demon possession. And um, as a result of that, there are many people who have been influenced by this kind of scholarship, and, and they will pro, uh, set forth these arguments. And so I think it's important as a pastor that my job is to protect you from false doctrine, to help you understand what is taught, what's out there in the marketplace of ideas, and to t- help you understand what the Bible does teach so that you can be protected against these things. They're not just a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of experience. It is a matter of what the text of Scripture uh, actually says. Now, we have these words that are used in the Greek text, and some or all of these are used in relationship to almost every example of demon possession in the Bible, so that a person, like, for example, the Gadarene demoniac, is not described as daimonizomai or demon-possessed until near the end of of the episode, but these other words are used. He's said to, uh, the, the demon is said to come out of him. And that's the Greek word ex, erikomai. And we have that preposition ek, meaning to come out, or meaning out of or out from, uh, joined to the verb erikomai, meaning to go or to come or to proceed. So that indicates that something comes out of something else. And then uh, when Jesus took the, cast the demons out, they went into this herd of, of pigs. And the word there was ace, erkamai. E-I-S is the preposition meaning to go into. So you have this out of and into terminology. And then uh, the whole action is described not with the word exorchizo, which is where we get our word exorcist. That word is only used in the Bible of the pagan practice. It's never used of what Jesus or the disciples did. What they did was to cast out a demon using that third word on the screen, ekbalo. Once again, you see that preposition ek, meaning out of or out from something. So again and again, the, the, the more technical words that are used to describe what's happening are words that indicate into 
and out of. Last week I put a quote on the board from uh, uh, Chuck Swindoll, who is a very well-known uh, radio uh, pastor. He is former cha- he's now Chancellor of Dallas Seminary, former president of Dallas Seminary. He wrote a book on, on uh, <coughs> demonism some years ago, and in there he said that even though originally he thought Christians could not be demon-possessed, uh, his experience was uh, that, uh, that they could. Once again, this comes out of the fact that people are making uh, exegetical decisions from Scripture, not on the basis of what the text says, not on the basis of the words, but on the basis of experience. So this brings us to a discussion of our basic question this week, and that is, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Now, last week, I made the point or observation as we were uh, introducing this subject that you have very few examples of demon possession in the Bible. Most of them, all of them, as a matter of fact, are within the narrow period covered by the Gospels and the book of Acts. There's no mention of demon possession outside of the book of Acts in any of the epistles, outside the Gospels and Acts in any of the epistles. You have a reference to probable demon possession in the tribulation period, and there's no mention of demon possession in the Old Testament. If you look at these words that I had up there earlier that define demon possession as going into or coming out of, you never have that into, out of terminology in the Old Testament. The, the one example people go to is Saul. When Saul has been disobedient to God, and he has already been disciplined by God, and he is going through these bouts of uh, depression and anxiety and psychosis. Uh, he it says that uh, demons came to him. It's very important to pay attention to the prepositions in the Hebrew. It says that these came to him or upon him, but it doesn't ever use the preposition in him, which would be the Hebrew preposition ba. It's always upon or to, so that would indicate external influence. Now, when I said that, somebody who was paying attention last week asked me if um, uh, the witch of Endor was not demon-possessed, because here you have somebody who is involved in, in necromancy, that is, calling up the dead. And see, what we're used to in our culture is somebody who claims to be uh, channeling the dead is someone who has taken over, and this uh, uh, individual, we're all getting distracted because uh, there's a problem over here with the screen, obviously. So uh, just try to pay attention to what I'm saying. Uh, you get these examples of people, you see them on television and television shows and Good Morning America and the Today Show and Oprah and all the shows you love to watch. And um, they get on and, and they channel uh, these demons. So it seems like what they do in necromancy, the, 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 if it is demonic, then that demon is coming in and through them. That's not how it was done in the ancient world. From my study of this, what happened in the ancient world when you had a uh, a seance and the necromancer or the witch is calling up the dead to speak. Uh, the voice would come out of the ground or out of the wall. It would be come. It wasn't coming through the witch of Endor when she would typically try to call up the dead. Uh, there would be a a voice that would come out of the ground, and so it wasn't coming through her. So I do not think that that was an example of channeling, as they call it today. Uh, you simply had somebody who was uh, in touch with the demonic world through through witchcraft and was uh, carrying on some sort of counterfeit uh, operation to make people think they were hearing from the dead. It never happened. Only one person ever came back from the dead and spoke in the Old Testament. That had to do with the witch of Endor, and that was Samuel because God had a very special purpose, and it scared the, I was going to say scared the devil. <laughs> out of the witch of Endor <laughs> because that wasn't the normal procedure. All of a sudden, there Samuel appeared. See, she was just used to hearing a voice out of the ground, and that voice is described in the Hebrew by the, by the term ove. So that was talked about. We would call that the ove demon, and it was that word, that Hebrew word ove, 
was translated by the Septuagint with the Greek word engastromuthos, which is a compound word, in, meaning inside, gastri, you get uh, gastric, or, uh, Igor, what's the Russian for a dent- dentist? Dentist? Yeah, dentist. Oh, stomata, stomata, yeah, stomata, for like stomach, so you get that kind of idea, and it's an opening, same word you get, gastri, these words are, are synonyms in Greek, that's where the Russian got the word, and you get this, um, it's in gastri muthos, and so, which is etymologically related to concept of mouth, so it came to mean a ventriloquist. And so that was the kind of idea. This was a ventriloquist demon who was just casting his voice out there. So, but that's not a case of demon possession. It's just a case of demon influence and demonic activity. Now, as this question is frequently raised by folks as to whether or not a Christian can be demon-possessed, I want to make it clear that this is, has been a difficult problem. Even for conservatives, often you find this kind of showmanship among charismatics and uh, the uh, televangelists as they make a big show out of some of this. But, but there's a number of otherwise sound, solid Bible teaching uh, theologians and pastors who have slipped on this slippery slope of this particular question. And I bring this up not to uh, uh, make any aspersions on anybody. I just want to point out how easy it is for people to get sucked into experiential type of arguments. You get in a room with somebody who starts throwing up split pea soup and their head turns around and, and they bounce off the walls and you say, hmm, it has to be demon possession. How do you know? Where, where I pointed out last time, where does the Bible ever give you uh, the, the, the characteristics of demon possession? I quoted early rabbi uh, rabbinical lists of demon possession, a list from the Puritans from the uh, 17th century, what modern writers have said, and they don't even agree with each other. And these kinds of things don't fit the biblical patterns at all. So we have to be very careful about this this slippery slope of experience. Now, many of you have been taught uh, a view, an argument, let's say, of demon possession or why Christians can't be demon possession. Demon possessed, it looks something like this. You have a major premise that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. The minor premise is that a demon and the Holy Spirit can't be in the same place. And then a conclusion, therefore, a Christian cannot have both a demon and the Holy Spirit in the same place. So therefore, they're not, they're not demon possessed. But that's wrong. That is a poorly constructed Argument. The conclusion is right, but it's poorly constructed. Now, that was a typical way in which that argument was presented. Let me give you a little history on this in relation to our particular camp and background. In the early or late 40s, uh, Dr. Merrill Unger, he uh, was the one who compiled the Unger's Bible Dictionary, wrote a commentary on the Old Testament, taught uh, Old Testament Dallas Theological Seminary for many years, was a professor of Hebrew at Dallas Seminary and is widely respected. He wrote his uh, doctoral dissertation at Dallas Seminary on the subject of uh, demon possession, and he concluded that Christians could not be demon-possessed. Well, when that dissertation was published as a book called Biblical Demonology, it created a furor out on the mission field because you get all these various missionaries in different places who have run into cases they assume are demon possession, and they assume that the people uh, that were demon possessed were Christians. And so Unger was flooded with letters from missionaries, and he went out on, and who invited him to the mission field. And so he went out on his little experiential tour, and he came back and he wrote a book in the late 60s called "What Demons Can Do to Christians," where he changed his view. And when you have a scholar of that repute changing his view, then people sit up and take notice. And that really had a, a tremendous influence, especially on people who were students of Dr. Unger's at Dallas Seminary during the late 60s, people like Charlie Clough, our dear friend. Okay, And Charlie bought into this position. Some of you who are at Lubbock Bible Church back in the 70s remember this. 
And Charlie taught that Christians could be demon-possessed. He influenced a couple of young seminary students uh, by the name of Tommy Ice and Robbie Dean. And, and it was because technically this argument that was used at, at the time is poor, poorly, let me put it back up there, is poorly stated and poorly constructed. Well, by the late 80s, we had all kinds of things going on among the acts and spasms of Christianity. And we had this new thing called the Vineyard Movement, and I was studying that in doctoral work at, at, at Dallas Seminary, and, and Tommy was doing some work on some other stuff related to the charismatic movement as, as a pastor. And so we started looking at this particular issue all over again. And as a result of that, we produced a book called What the Bible Teaches About Spiritual Warfare. And in that, we constructed a better argument. So the problem was the argument was just stated poorly. It wasn't that it, the conclusion was necessarily wrong. It was just a poor, poorly stated argument. And, and we were kept getting slaughtered by people who were saying, well, what do you do in heaven? You have all these convocations of angels where you have God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the Trinity would be there. And you have Satan and, and fallen angels up there along with elect angels. And there are other examples in Scripture of, of God being in the presence of sinners, well, what's going on here? I mean, if God can be in the same location as sinners and you can have demons, fallen angels in heaven, in assembly, in the throne room of God, along with elect angels, then obviously you can have, you can have demons and the Holy Spirit in the same place. See, it's just a poorly constructed argument. So let's look at the details in terms of the text. Incidentally, after Charlie read our book, Charlie changed his view. I say that also because I know many of, many of Charlie's older, thing, older studies that he did when he was at LBC are, are up on the Internet, and people are listening to them, and you may run across that and kind of scratch your head. So that gives you the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Okay, 1 Corinthians 3.16 is the foundation for this. I want to run through about six different arguments why to show that a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. You don't need to be in fear of that this Halloween, which, as you know, is really Reformation Day. Do you not know, Paul says, that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That's 1 Corinthians 3.16. And he says almost the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body is the uh, temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? So what's important here? And that is the Greek word that is used to translate the word temple. It is the word naos. And naos is one of two Greek words translated temple, but they have different significances. The word naos refers to the inner sanctum, what we call the holy of holies, the innermost place in the temple where the Shekinah glory Dwelt. Actually, that's a bit redundant because the word Shekinah means indwelling. That's where you had the indwelling presence of God. That's where you saw, they saw what rabbis later called the, the Shekinah. Now, here is a picture of the tabernacle. As it was set up, you have the outer courtyard, and then inside that there was the tent of meeting, which we also call the Holy of Holies. Now, the Greek word heron includes not only the inner building of the Holy of Holies, but also refers to all of the external grounds and the outside courtyards. Anyone could go into the outer courtyard, but no one could go into the Holy of Holies other than the high priest, and the high priest had to go through the cleansing ritual before he could enter into the Holy of Holies because uncleansed or unsanctified, he could not enter into the presence where God dwelt. Now, if you were in the outer courtyard, obviously, and it just entered the gate, you would not yet be ceremonially cleansed, but you could, as an unsanctified, uncleansed sinner, 
be in the outer courtyard, the heron of the temple. But you could not enter into the naos, the inner sanctum, unless you were cleansed. Nothing could enter into the naos that was not sanctified. And we see several examples of that in the, in the Old Testament. For example, Aaron the high priest had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, according to Exodus 6, 23. Uh, Nadab and Abihu were part of the Levitical priesthood, and they were also included along with Aaron when Moses took the 70 elders of Israel up on the mountain to listen to God. Now, only Moses could go into the presence of God, but Nadab and Abihu were, uh, uh, did accompany him. But later on, as the Jews are going through the wilderness wandering, Nadab and Abihu became a little bit arrogant and rebellious, and Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1 and following, and Numbers 3, 4, explains that they tried to come into the tent of meeting with what the Bible called unauthorized fire. In other words, without being cleansed and not being the high priest, they tried to, they violated God's prescriptions for coming into his presence, and when they entered into the Holy of Holies in an unauthorized manner, they didn't die a little while later. They died right then. It was instant. Unsanctified, uncleansed people could not come into the dwell, where the dwelling presence of the Shekinah was. Now, who was the dwelling place, presence of the Shekinah? Who was that? Was that the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? That was the Son, because the Father never appeared in the Old Testament. We know that the from various passages that the Dwelling presence in the temple was the Lord Jesus Christ. We have another example in the Old Testament. As David was transporting the ark into Jerusalem, and there was a lot of fanfare, pomp, and circumstance, and ceremony, and the ark was on an ox cart, and that ox cart hit a uh, chug hole in the road and jostled the ark, and uh, one of the men walking alongside thinking that God needed to be stabilized uh, reached out and touched the ark to stabilize it, and he died instantly. See, he's unsanctified, uncleansed. He can't be in the same place as the dwelling presence of God. So that's covered in Second Samuel chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. So what we see here is a pattern, and that is that when God purifies, sanctifies, that's that word that means set apart, consecrated, when a, a, that temple is set apart for his indwelling presence, nothing undefiled, uncleansed, unsanctified can enter in to that inner sanctum, the naos of God. Now we can also, I have a couple of other pictures here just for your uh, edification this morning. This is a diagram of the uh, holy place, the, the inner, the, the, area of meeting in the later Solomonic temple. You have the larger uh, holy place here and then the inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies here, but only the high priest could enter in to this particular uh, building. Some priests could enter into the holy place, but only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum, and they had to be cleansed and sanctified before they could even enter into this building at all. There's a diagram of the tent of meeting as it was in the in the tabernacle. And here is a picture of the diagram of the temple, what it would look like in terms of the outer courtyard. So the point I'm making is that the Old, Te- uh, Old Testament makes a distinction, and the Greek and the New Testament makes a distinction between the overall structure of the temple and the temple courtyards and, and outer precincts and that inner sanctum of the meeting place with the person of God. So 1 Corinthians 3.16 is reminding the Corinthians, do you not know that you as a believer are a temple of God, a naos? Now let me just add something because I've run into this little uh, quirk recently, is that the you there is a plural. Do you not know, do you all not know that you all are a temple of God? We... Paul was from southern Turkey, remember. 
And so people will say that the, 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 the y'all there, the you plural, indicates the corporate assembly of the church. So that when the body of believers comes together in corporate worship, then the Holy Spirit indwells them. Problem with that is that Paul consistently in his epistle to the Corinthians consistently addresses consistently for the purpose of individual application addresses the congregation with a second person plural. In other words, he's constantly saying, y'all need to do this, y'all need to do that, but he's not talking corporately. He's talking about every individual within the corporate body, within the congregation. Just as I might say, y'all need to pray. That does. I'm not saying... The body here, the congregation needs to pray. I'm saying each individual within here needs to consistently pray. That's how Paul uses the second person plural here. So he is talking about the fact that each individual is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He says that specifically in Romans chapter 8, so this is not something that is an unusual view. We are a temple, a naos. Now, the temple was a set-apart, sanctified, consecrated area for the not only the dwelling of, of uh, God the Holy Spirit, but also the indwelling of the person of Christ. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 3.17, he prays, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, talking about the indwelling of the second person of the Trinity. Uh, John 17.23, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says to the Father, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity. So he talks about the fact that he is a second person of the Trinity is also indwelling every believer. It's not just the Holy Spirit that indwells you. The Holy Spirit indwells you to create in you a naos, an inner sanctum, a temple, wherein the second person of the Trinity dwells. That is the same image we have from the from the Old Testament. See, you have the light, the Shekinah inside the Naos, and that Naos is a picture, I mean the whole structure is a picture of the external body of the believer, and the Naos is that internal uh, inner sanctum established by the Holy Spirit for the indwelling of the second person of the Trinity. So let's reconstruct our argument. The major premise should be st- stated this way. Every believer is a set-apart sanctuary by the Holy Spirit for the indwelling Jesus Christ. Every believer is a set-apart sanctuary by the Holy Spirit for the indwelling Jesus Christ. Your body is the naos, okay? Minor premise. Unsanctified creatures, including demons and man, cannot enter into this kind of set-apart sanctuary. Conclusion. Therefore, demons cannot enter into the set-apart sanctuary of the believer's body. Just tightened it up. You have to understand the significance of that word naos and the significance of that sanctifying thing that happens to church-age believers at that instant of salvation. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So we can have great confidence that we have no basis for fear, anxiety, worry, that somehow the problems that we have in life are because we're demon-possessed and we have to be delivered. You see, this is a problem with this. If a major problem that you have is demon possession or that a Christian can have is demon possession, then... The, what's the solution, and how do you resolve that? And so that opens up a whole arena of problem-solving. But if a Christian cannot be demon-possessed, then that excludes that whole arena of problem-solving. You see, people who believe that a Christian can be demon-possessed are running down rabbit trails instead of looking at the real issue, which is rebellion against God and personal sinfulness, negative volition, rejection of the Bible, etc. Okay, that's our first major argument against demon possession. The second one comes out of Jesus' uh, discussion with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. 
And he uses an illustration in Matthew chapter 12 that is very helpful here. It's split between Matthew 12, 28 and 29 and Matthew 12, 43 through 45. He says to the, to the Pharisees who had accused him of casting out demons by the power of, of, of uh, Beelzebul or Satan, he says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or, this is the point, verse 29, or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? See, what he's talking about here is simply that the strong man represents demonic control and it reinforces what I've been teaching, the demon possession is internal demonic control of a person's, an unbeliever's body. Now he expands on this in verse 43. He says, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, once again, out of, indicating possession is into, when it leaves, it's out of, reinforces the idea demon possession isn't just being acted on by a demon, it's the internal uh, indwelling of a demon. He says, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, It passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, that's the demon, the unclean spirit, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now, let me just stop there. Here's the point. He's saying, okay, a demon leaves. He wanders around going, okay, I can't find anybody else to inhabit. I'm just going to go back to where I was. But when he gets back to where he was, he finds it unoccupied. What's the inference? If it were occupied by the Holy Spirit, he couldn't get back in. He would knock on the door and get an answer. It's the Holy Spirit. can't can't come in. So Jesus went on to say, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, but swept and put in order. See, this is moral reformation. This person who had been demon-possessed has cleaned up his life. He's not involved in demonic things anymore. He's not messing with tarot cards or, or uh, Ouija boards or going to uh, uh, various uh, fortune tellers or whatever it is that he was doing. Uh, he's cleaned up his life. But see, cleaning up your life isn't enough. The issue is occupation, whether the Holy Spirit occupies or not. Matthew 12:45. Jesus said, then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and they have a party. And they, the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Okay. Third argument, Jesus' high priestly prayer, John seventeen fifteen. Jesus talks about his own victory over Satan and the demonic, and he comes to the point in John 17 where he prays for the coming church, for his disciples and the coming church. This is the true Lord's Prayer, John 17. And in that prayer, he prays to the Father, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, them, that is, believers, the disciples specifically and believers later on, take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And we have a key preposition here, ek. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to take them. They're inside the world. We live in the world system, though we're not of the world. We are in the world system. Jesus says, I don't want you to take them out of the world, but that you should keep them, tereo, which indicates uh, complete preservation, keep them from indicating ever entering into the uh, control of the evil one. Now, Jesus is praying to the Father that the Father keep every believer from ever coming under that kind of influence from, from Satan, then we must accept the fact that the Father is answering uh, that particular prayer. The, the Lord may have implied several other things by this particular uh, statement, but at the very least, this would include protecting believers from demon possession. A fourth passage that reinforces the view of our protection by the Father is 1 John 5, 18 and 19. I believe 1 John is a commentary, John's commentary, John's exposition and development of what Jesus taught in the upper room, concluding with the high priestly prayer. 
And in 1 John 5.18, he says, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And the key phrase there is just that last phrase in 5.18, that the wicked one does not touch the believer. This is the Greek verb hopto, which means to touch, to take hold of, and it usually implies uh, grabbing hold of or touching someone with the intent of doing harm. So the statement, the clear statement by John, is that the wicked one does not harm us. So that would at the very least include the idea of a demon moving into your body and taking up residence and wreaking havoc with your life. Our fifth argument comes from Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.3. There he writes, The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And here we have a different preposition. It's not the preposition act keeping you out from, that is, entering into the uh, control of the wicked one, the evil one, but it is a, pass- a preposition that ha- has the idea of being kept away from something. And when it's used in combination with the verb to guard or to protect, it means something along the lines so that it is not lost or damaged. So the idea here in the Greek is the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from any harm or damage from the evil one. The protection is based on the Lord's faithfulness. Notice the premise. The Lord is faithful. It's not based on your faithfulness, your obedience, your uh, spirituality, your carnality. It's not based on any human factor. It's based on the faithfulness of God. He is the one who is going to protect us and preserve us. We sang this morning the hymn based on Lamentations 3, Great is thy faithfulness. It never varies. There's no shifting or shadow of turning with God. He always protects us even when we are rebellious, even when we are disobedient. And the last argument for why Christians cannot be demon-possessed is really an argument from silence, not in the sense of a logical fallacy, but in the sense that the Scripture doesn't mention it as either a problem or give us a solution. Now, Second Peter 1, 3, and 4 is just one of my favorite passages in Scripture. There Peter says that his divine power has given to us all things related to life by us. Has to do, or Zoe rather, has to do with our physical life and godliness, the Greek word eusebeia, which has to do with our spiritual life. So he's given us all things, everything we need to carry out his plan, his will for our life. Not everything you want, but everything you need. He's given you all the logistical things that you need to live your Christian life physically, and he has supplied you with everything you need in terms of your divine assets and infinite blessings in the spiritual life. Uh, Ephesians 1.3, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He's given us everything. He didn't miss out. Okay, that's your premise, the sufficiency of Scripture. Your minor premise is that in the epistles, which are written for the edification and strengthening and the instruction of the church during the church age, there is no mention of demon possession at all. Not once. The silence is deafening. If the Bible is going to tell you everything you need to know to live your spiritual life in the church age, and it doesn't mention demon possession, then what's your conclusion? It's not a problem. Don't worry about it. This is not something that should uh, come into your horizons. Demon possession doesn't bother Christians. Not only that, but not once does Paul or Peter or John give us any instruction as to how to cast out a demon, how to recognize demon possession, and or how to go through what people would call an exorcism, all of this kind of stuff. It never happens. It's silent. The silence is resounding. This is not an issue. If it were, we would have been told about it. If it were an issue, it would have been described. But it's not there. 
So we have a tremendous uh, argument here from the fact that this Bible is sufficient and there's no mention of this. So what's, what should we conclude from this as believers? I'm not saying that there's not demon possession in the world. I'm not saying that though the Old Testament never mentions demon possession, that there wasn't demon possession in the Old Testament. What I am saying is that demon possession, as it is superstitiously practiced among many different Christians down through the ages, is not what the Bible talks about. The emphasis in the Scripture is not on the fact that Satan or a demon can come in and really mess up your life. The issue is you're going to do that by your own volition. And the solution for an unbeliever is the gospel. Because even though a person could be demon-possessed and a demon could override his uh, soul control of his body, it doesn't override or negate his personality. That he may not be able to control his body and express it, but he's still there. He can still listen. That, that, that gathering demoniac could hear what the Lord was saying, but he just couldn't respond because his control had been given up to a demon. But his soul could respond. And if he heard the gospel, he could, he could respond and put his faith alone in Christ alone. That is the solution. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't need to worry about that problem. But you have a more insidious problem to deal with. And that is the problem of demon influence. Because we are all demon influenced to the degree that we base our lives on the thinking of the world system around us. James in James 3:13 through 15 says that the thinking of the world is earthly, the wisdom of the world is earthly, natural or soulish, that of the unbeliever and demonic. They're equated. When we are not thinking biblically, we are thinking like Satan thinks. Those are the only two options. It's either divine viewpoint or human viewpoint, but human viewpoint is demonic viewpoint. Human viewpoint is satanic viewpoint. And that's why the scriptures admonish us that we are not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, by taking in the word of God and flushing out the human viewpoint and replacing it with the teaching of scripture. And that doesn't happen just by showing up at church once a week. You can't overhaul your thinking. You've been, you've been brainwashed by the world system from the day you came out of the womb. And when you came out of the womb, you had a sin nature that had affinity to the thinking of the world. And so you just soaked it up. And you did that for many, many years. Even if you became a believer as a child, you still soaked it up through the media, through peers, and through your parents, and all kinds of things. You've got all kinds of nice human viewpoint stuff floating around in your soul because you thought that you could make life work based on human viewpoint. You really didn't have to sit down and make the Bible the number one priority in your life, and you really didn't think you had to align everything in your thinking to the Word of God. You could find happiness and stability. Uh, I might go to church on Sunday. I'll give lip service to God. I will have the window dressing, but I'm still going to do what I can my way. And what the Bible says is that doesn't work at all. You've got two options. And the path for the believer is the path of transforming his thinking. And that, that's a daily operation. You may not have time to listen to a tape or go to Bible class every single day for an hour, but you have time every day to read some scripture. You have time every day to listen uh, to, we can't call them tapes anymore, to listen to a recorded Bible class, watch a DVD, even if it's 15 minutes while you're getting up in the morning and you're going through your morning ritual and getting ready for work, getting ready to leave on the way to work, just to be reminded daily of what God has done for you, of his faithfulness, of his grace, of his power, of his mercy, of his complete and sufficient provision for every issue in life. That is where the battle is fought is fought on a day-to-day basis. And if we don't make the Word of God and knowing it and living it our highest priority, then we will succumb to all the onslaughts of Satan in the context of spiritual warfare. 
But God is faithful, and he will always protect us, for he has provided everything for us. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we're thankful that you have given us everything, that you have not only provided us with your word, but you have provided us with the Holy Spirit who indwells us, fills us, teaches us, guides us and directs us, helps us to understand your word, and he is the one who brings to mind that which we have learned that we may apply it in times of tests. Father, we pray that we might not uh, fall shy of what is given to us as a mandate in Scripture to be transformed by the renewing of our thinking. This is a challenge. It's not always easy with our busy schedules, but we need to understand that, that we have been bought with a price and our bodies, our lives are not our own, but they belong to you. And we have truly become slaves of righteousness as opposed to slaves to sin nature. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. If you have never trusted in Christ as your Savior, that's all you need to do to be a Christian. You simply believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. At that instant, God knows what you are trusting in for your salvation, that it's not works or religion, it's not in uh, any good deeds that you have done, but it is solely on the work of Christ on the cross. And right now, right where you sit, you can trust Christ as your Savior. You will receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. Uh, You will be declared justified, and you will have eternal life. It will never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask Eager small yard to come up and to close us dismiss us in closing prayer Heavenly Father thank you for this day thank you for this opportunity to be here with my brother and sister thank you for this sermon and please bless all us for this day in Jesus Christ's name we pray Amen